I think the signal Aka sends uh, on top of the quad summit is a very powerful one uh, that will start to resonate inside Zhenghanghai, inside China, about the consequences of China's growing coercion against neighbors. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Chris Park, and I'm joined by my co-host, Lauren Zhu. On September 15th, U.S. President Biden, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, and British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced AUKUS, a new trilateral security pact. The agreement focuses on military capability, and the United States and the United Kingdom notably will be helping Australia acquire eight nuclear-powered submarines. What compelled Australia to seek this agreement? What are the strategic implications of nuclear submarines? And is AUKUS a precursor to a more substantive American engagement in the Indo-Pacific? Dr. Michael Green joins us on the podcast to explain AUKUS and the future of the Indo-Pacific. Dr. Green is the Senior Vice President for Asia and Japan Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and Director of Asian Studies at the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He served on the staff of the National Security Council from 2001 through 2005 first as the Director for Asian Affairs, and then as Special Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs, and Senior Director for Asia, with responsibility for East Asia and South Asia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you so much, Dr. Green, for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much. So the United States, Australia, and the United Kingdom recently announced the creation of a trilateral security pact, AUKUS, on September 15th. To start off our discussion, um, can you walk us through with the, some of the key provisions and components of this agreement? Sure. This was an agreement that um, uh, has many um, fathers, so to speak. Um, it, there are many things that, that, that motivated the three countries, the U.S., Australia, and the United Kingdom. But the core thing that led Australia to propose this idea to the United States first and then Britain was that... Um, uh, the Australian, uh, the Royal Australian Navy um, uh, needs submarines to replace its current Collins-class submarines. And as the uh, People's Liberation Navy, the Chinese Navy, has expanded its power projection um, and um, unnerved Australia and the rest of the region with its increasing military pressure on Taiwan and Japan and India and so forth, uh, the Australians... Uh, realized that their plan was not working for their new submarines. They needed some real firepower. They needed submarines that could go fast and far. And um, they had reached an agreement with the French, with the, with the naval group, the French industry conglomerate, to build submarines for them. And the French have a nuclear-powered submarine. Uh, they were going to take out the nuclear propulsion element and put in place diesel. And... Um, that turned out to be extremely difficult engineering, and it kept falling behind, and there were disagreements about um, content, and the French side insisted more and more work be done in France. Meanwhile, the, the threat from China was growing. So the Australians came to the U.S. first and said, we, uh, we would like to do this. We'd like to have um, uh, nuclear-powered submarines, which our public will now accept, we think, um, that will give us the stealth and range to deal with this growing threat. And the U.S. and Britain agreed, which is remarkable because we have not shared our nuclear propulsion technology with anyone except Britain. And that was in 1958, I think. So this was at its core a deal to give Australia submarine capability. But they wrapped around that other things, including cooperation on supply chain security, cyber uh, warfare, cyber defense um, strategies and coordination, 
Um, and um, it, it now has commanded incredible attention from the world. The French are obviously very unhappy. Um, and it really is going to be one of those things historians look back on as an inflection point, because Britain and Australia both had pretty decent relations with China uh, eight years ago or so. But Beijing's wolf warrior diplomacy has, has lost them to potential friends, which are now full in for strategic competition as China flexes its muscles. So it's got big geopolitical um, ramifications. Um, but as I said, it's, at its core, the, the, the impetus for Australia was this requirement for a new submarine. So helping Australia develop nuclear submarines, as you said, is the key provision of this agreement. Can you elaborate a bit more on why nuclear submarines are important and what it will allow Australia to do um, now that it's receiving this technology from the United States? Sure. I, I'm not a nuclear engineer. In fact, when I was a PhD student at SAIS, I worked as a research assistant for Harold Brown, the former Secretary of Defense, who was at SAIS at the time. And we used to play tennis. And one day he said to me, you know what I like about you, Mike? Unlike these other students at SAIS, you understand nuclear physics. And I said, Dr. Brown, I haven't had physics since ninth grade. Um, so I am good at faking it, but I am not uh, a nuclear engineer. But my understanding is that uh, nuclear propulsion will allow uh, these submarines, the Australians will probably have eight at least, to um, to range far and wide um, and, uh, and, and, and be at sea as a deterrent and able, you know, not only to protect the choke points and approaches to Australia, but notionally to, um, to threaten Chinese interests. Um, and so it's a very powerful deterrent because they can stay at sea for a very long time. And they will probably have on them tomahawk or other um, uh, weapon systems that give them a lot of punch. Not nuclear weapons. The Australians are not pursuing nuclear weapons, but it will give them a really powerful deterrent. And, um, uh, you know, in recent years, uh, the Australians have found Chinese submarines in the Pacific Islands. Uh, the prime minister a few years ago told the country, told the nation that China was trying to build a submarine base in Vanuatu uh, near Australia. So, um, uh, they needed uh, this capability. The U.S. and our allies are, many experts would say, about 15 years ahead of China on undersea warfare. We're very, very good at it. Um, but the gap is closing quickly. This keeps our lead collectively, the U.S., Australia, Japan, Britain. Um, and so it complicates Chinese planning. Chinese don't like it, but that, in a way, is the point. We don't want to make it easier for China to use military force. And what is the United Kingdom's role in all of this? Why did Australia and United States include, choose to include um, London in this agreement? Well, the, um, the practical reason is that, that uh, the Royal Navy, the United Kingdom, also has this nuclear propulsion uh, uh, technology. And um, th they are designing a, a new class of submarines, the Astute class. Um, and so they have technology. They have... Um, uh, uh, strong, of course, historic ties with Australia and with the U.S. Navy. Um, and I think they will provide also capability. The Australians have no nuclear uh, power infrastructure for their Navy, so they're going to need help with that. They don't have training for their um, submariners to prepare to work um, in these uh, nuclear-powered submarines. So this is a big uh, task they have ahead of them, and the U.S. Navy has the best capability in the world, but there probably aren't enough U.S. naval officers who can uh, who can divert to help the Australians. So the British will bring that capability, that technology as well. And for Britain, it does two more things. Um, it it makes them a player in the Pacific. 
in, in a big way at a time when Boris Johnson is looking for a, a role and a mission and a presence for global Britain after Brexit, after leaving the EU. So it's, it, it's, it's a big play for Britain strategically as well. So could you kind of elaborate on the response to AUKUS by American allies and partners not in Asia, such as France and other EU states? Well, we'll start with the French because they're very unhappy, as you can imagine. This is a $66 billion deal they've lost. Um, the Australian side uh, says they told the French that they were not doing the job and forewarned this would happen. Um, uh, the, 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 the French are um, also, like Britain, looking to have more of a geopolitical role in Asia. The French have the largest um, EEZ, exclusive economic zone, of any country in the Pacific, in the South Pacific, because of their former colonies. Um, so they have real interests. They generally have a frigate on station in the Pacific. Um, and so this is a real blow to Macron six months before an election in France, where Marie Le Pen and the right will attack him for being you know, a loser on the world stage. Um, and for that very reason, the French had to react ferociously. And, you know, they threatened to... Um, build new partnerships with India and Indonesia to, to counter the militaristic approach of the United States, which was a little bit silly because India is in the quad with the United States, Japan, and Australia. And India is not going to move away from cooperation with other maritime uh, democracies in the Pacific because France is mad. Um, so the French diplomacy didn't have a lot of legs. <clears throat> the other thing that uh, Paris did was you know, try to organize the rest of Europe to criticize America's militaristic approach to the Pacific, which was a little bit um, rich because, of course, the French, till they lost the deal, had been building these submarines and militarizing the Pacific. So, uh, but I think for political reasons, France had to react ferociously. <clears throat> um, uh, and, you know, Biden and Macron spoke and, and, and we're, we're patching things up. Um, that said, I think uh, the number of of observers, including myself, were a little bit surprised that the that the United States, that the administration didn't think through a little more how to soften the blow for France. Um, you know, this announcement was made on of AUKUS on the same day that the EU rolled out its Indo-Pacific strategy. So we completely stepped on their line, on their headline, in a document that, you know, was pretty favorable for the US and Australia in terms of thinking about the region. And um, we couldn't tell the French because, frankly, Paris would have tried to sabotage the deal. But um, there was very little um, planning within the administration about how to manage the French response. And the administration seemed genuinely surprised. So it was an unforced error that you know, hurts a little bit in transatlantic solidarity, which we need with a, with a more assertive China. But I don't think it's um, a catastrophe in transatlantic relations. I think, I think France has its own interests. Um, France is not about to align with China out of peak, um, but it didn't have to be quite this rough, frankly. I think it shows that on, on execution of policy, the administration still has some challenges, uh, in part because so many senior officials and ambassadors have not been confirmed. Um, you know, they're not seats in chairs. So, you know, perhaps beyond, um, you know, nom nomination of more ambassadors to Europe um, in the Biden administration, what could have um, they have done differently, perhaps, to soften the blow and make the agreement not as surprising, while at the same time preserving the integrity of the agreement and avoid 
uh, Paris potentially sabotaging AUKUS. Yeah, no, that's 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 what diplomats get paid the big bucks for. You know, it's it's uh, it seems like an almost intractable problem. But um, the timing, you know, did it have to be on the same day as the EU's Indo-Pacific report? Um, the um, the framing. I mean, there's a lot of um, uh, showcasing of the American, British, and Australian flags and three you know historic Anglosphere countries. The messaging could have emphasized more. Uh, from all three leaders about how important Europe, NATO, the EU, Five Eyes are, because the other countries that are a little cranky, not like the French, but a little crankier, Canada and New Zealand, which are uh, with the US, Australia and Britain in Five Eyes, this, this very intimate intelligence and security cooperation framework. And so the messaging could have been better too. Look, the French were going to hate this deal. If you lost 66 billion, you'd be unhappy too. Um, but, but, you know, they didn't quite package it in ways to, to, to make it easier for, um, for the Europeans to say we're not being slighted and they understand our importance and so forth. So we've discussed so far how AUKUS, the inception of AUKUS was out of a changing strategic environment of increasing animosity between, um, Beijing, um, and Australia, as well as, you know, China and the United States and the United Kingdom. So what has been China's response thus far to the creation of AUKUS? And do you foresee AUKUS as um, a source that could inflame tensions between the United States and China? So the bottom line is um, Beijing is not happy about this. Um, uh, They're not happy because now the U.S. and its allies are going to have considerably more undersea um, uh, naval power. It it almost... um, sets back Chinese military ambitions, um, uh, it's so significant. Um, And geopolitically, they don't like it. Um, They don't want uh, countries coming together to oppose China, obviously. Um, And rhetorically, the the, the Xinhua and Global Times and so forth have used language about containment and, and and they've talked about small groups and cliques and clubs um, uh, disrupting the peace and harmony that China wants for Asia and trying to contain China. Um, you frequently see um, reference back to um, the Boxer Rebellion and the idea that here go the Western Anglo-American-led imperial powers holding China down. There's a lot of angry rhetoric. Um, and uh, part of that is because Xi Jinping is going into, is preparing for the 20th Party Congress where he will make uh, the move for a third, unprecedented third term, and uh, basically setting the stage to be leader for life and trying to build himself up to the level of a Mao Zedong or a Deng Xiaoping. So he's using this to, to essentially say to cadres, you know, it's a perilous time for China, you know, with, uh, with, with, our, with our adversaries, you know, surrounding us in small groups and cliques and clubs. And he's using it um, to get support. The PLA is using it. Um, to get resources, especially the PLA Navy. That's not surprising. Um, but China doesn't have a lot of good options. Um, they're, they're, you know, the, the Indians are not going to help them out of this. Um, the Russians, they have a relationship with that's based on countering U.S. alliances, but it's not a loving or deeply trusting relationship. And the Russians are limiting the technology now they'll share with China. Um even as they embrace a relationship with Xi Jinping to undermine the U.S. alliance system. Um, the other sort of 
allies that China might turn to are Pakistan or North Korea, um, not particularly helpful. So China doesn't have a lot of geopolitical or diplomatic um, options uh, to counter this. Um, they're already putting pedal to the metal, increasing defense spending, especially maritime capabilities. They'll do some more of that. Um, it really shows the consequences of Xi Jinping's diplomacy. I, I mean, it wasn't too long ago that Britain's Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Osborne, was calling on London to be the renminbi, the Chinese um, uh, currency capital of Europe, and um, welcoming nuclear power um, uh, bids from China and 5G from China. And the Australia, uh, you know, in 2007, eight, you know, uh, left the quad. And um, uh, scholars like Hugh White were writing books called China Choice that Australia had to choose whether it really wanted to be against China. And, um, you know, a deft Chinese diplomacy could have really pulled two of America's most intimate and historic allies, Britain and Australia, closer to Beijing. Um, but the Chinese did the opposite. They pushed Australia and Britain right into our arms. And in Australia in particular, China has been boycotting and pressuring and and criticizing, and um, the Australians are proud people, and, and this is their answer. So it, 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 the Chinese response to these things has not been diplomacy. It's been rhetoric and then a sort of hard line. How is how other countries in the Indo-Pacific region, you know, such as Southeast Asian countries, um, you know, especially states with, you know, stakes in, um, you know, South China, uh, on the ongoing South China Sea issues, reacted to AUKUS? and the incre increase in American security commitments to the region. U.S., U.K., and Australia coming together is such a Anglosphere, English-speaking people's club um, that across the region, there's a little bit of discomfort in Japan. Uh, Indonesia, you know, uh, the government in Indonesia has been somewhat critical um, because, of course, these submarines are going to be in Indonesian waters too, possibly. Um, but behind the scenes, um, the major powers in the region, or I should say the middle powers in the region that are most worried about China are privately quite pleased to see this. And that would be Japan, um, Vietnam, um, uh, the Philippines, not Duterte, but the Philippine Armed Forces, because they're all Taiwan. They're all looking at the order of battle and the size of the Chinese Navy, the PLA Navy, which, which um, is now, uh, at least in terms of total number of ships, larger than the U.S. Navy. Their ships are not as potent, not as lethal, not as high-tech, but, but growing. And um, it wasn't too long ago the PLA Navy was smaller than the Japanese Navy. Now uh, China's deploying as many ships as Japan has about every decade. So the rest of the region, Taiwan, Vietnam, Indonesia, the Philippines, you know, they're, they're looking at that. And this um, resets the balance and um, over the long term. And uh, so privately, um, I think um, strategic thinkers in, in across the region, especially in maritime Asia, um, think this is necessary uh, because of the of the trends they're, they're seeing in naval power in the region. So in your opinion, what's kind of next for AUKUS? How quickly will Australia kind of receive these nuclear powered sub submarines and implement these provisions? Ah, so the fine print, which the fine print is not, you know, nothing. It's complicated. The three governments are going to spend the next 18 months uh, formulating a plan um, uh, and then begin designing and building these submarines. 
um, with the expectation that the first one will be deployed in uh, about 20 years. So this is a very long-term project. It does show you how much the Australians in particular, and of course the US and UK, think strategic competition with China is a multi-generational problem. This is not just a Xi Jinping problem. And um, so that's what will happen. And um, uh, when you when you say what's next for AUKUS, I think this intimate uh, relationship, the US, UK, Australia, uh, will lead to other things. So um, more cooperation on cyber, um, supply chain security, making sure we can get semiconductors, critical materials for our defense industrial base, working together to make sure that happens. Australia's Northern Territory has a lot of these, you know, critical minerals that you need, for example. Um, uh, there's a parallel um, uh, discussion to AUKUS about um, uh, the Australian government's vision for a um, rocket city. You know, Huntsville, Alabama, um, where my daughter just went to NASA space camp, which was very cool. Um, Huntsville, Alabama is um, the missile and rocket center uh, of the United States. And um, the Australians are looking at Adelaide, Brisbane, somewhere in Australia to produce uh, missiles and rockets, you know, cruise missiles, um, long-range uh, LRASM, strike missiles, uh, rockets, rocket engines, um, because this requirement for long-range precision strike, cruise missiles and ballistic missiles uh, of different, uh, sorry, cruise missiles and uh, area surface missiles, is growing because the Chinese have been building up, uh, while we were distracted in the Middle East, uh, their own capability to shoot. Their missiles now shoot further than ours. The PLA Navy's ships' missiles shoot further than us of the Australians. So there's a huge catch-up we have to do. And um, U.S. industry is enthusiastic, enthusiastic about this idea. The, the Biden administration is supportive. So I think that's something else that could grow out of this. The British would naturally be in that as well, uh, building this kind of capability in Australia. Um, uh, and I would think Japan, maybe Korea, uh, because Japan and Korea also have a requirement for strike capability for, for, for surface-to-surface or air-to-surface missiles. And the U.S. isn't making them fast enough to deal with the threat China is presenting to us all and also North Korea. So um, uh, that defense technology industrial base activity, I think, is going to be increasingly important. And I could see, as I said, Japan, maybe Korea uh, and others being pulled into that. So this is, AUKUS is not um, the NATO of Asia. It's one of a series of arrangements. We have obviously bilateral security treaties and bases with Japan. We have a bilateral security treaty and bases with Korea. We have a treaty, no bases yet, but but a treaty with Australia and so forth. So uh, we have the Quad with India, Australia, Japan, the US. There's, this, is a, this is a mix of um, alignments and alliances and technology cooperation frameworks to bring together um, states in the region that are very worried about the trends uh, we see with China. But it's not NATO. It's not a collective security arrangement to stop China because all of us have economic interests with China and an interest in bending China back to a more cooperative stance. And, and, and when you see this, all of these things form into something like a NATO, which I don't predict, but when you start seeing that kind of collective security arrangement, what that tells you is um, that the countries have given up on a vision of China um, being a, a, what we used to call a responsible stakeholder. And none of the countries are giving up on that yet. But they're very worried about the trend lines and they're hedging and they're aligning with each other to deal with it. What will be the AUKUS PAC's relations with the Quad? What do you see that as? There's a lot of overlap. Um, 
Obviously, uh, two of the countries in AUKUS, the United States and Australia, are in the Quad with Japan and India. <laughs> um, the agenda has a lot of overlap. In the Quad, there is a commitment that these four countries will also work on um, supply chain security, among, among other things. Um, and I wouldn't uh, be surprised to see um, members of the Quad uh, joining into some of the U.S., Australia, and AUKUS activities. For example, this um, rocket and missile um, uh, infrastructure and, and, and city in Australia, you know, that's, that's something I think Japan will be very interested in, and perhaps India, perhaps. Um, and uh, I could see the U.K. now, because of this pivot to the Pacific um, as part of Global Britain, joining uh, the Quad, not as a formal member. I think the Quad will stay the Quad for... But for example, sending, you know, the um, HMS Queen Elizabeth will be in the region. And so sending um, uh, surface action groups and frigates and destroyers to participate in quad um, exercises, the Malabar exercises, India hosts, for example. So there'll be a lot of pickup games and a lot of um, a la carte cooperation and overlap between the AUKUS and the quad. But they're not going to combine. An Australian friend the other day said, um, you know, don't expect Quad and AUKUS to combine. Besides, if you did, it would have to be called Quad AUKUS, which sounds like some exotic Australian animal. Um, so uh, it's going to be a lot of a la carte um, overlap among these various groupings. And there are others that don't get attention, like the U.S.-Japan security trilateral with Australia, which is very active. Um, and so it's really an eclectic mix of these um, of these groupings cooperating on security issues, much of which overlaps, but it's not yet a NATO where we're all on the same uh, uh, exact uh, agreement. You mentioned before that, you know, more countries like, you know, notably Japan may seek to join AUKUS or at least closely work with um, AUKUS. And, you know, perhaps the United States will be willing to strike um, similar agreements with more countries. Um, as it shifts its focus uh, truly to the Indo-Pacific. I'm wondering, you know, there are concerns that, you know, such expansion and AUKUS itself is a, um, poses a threat to the current non-proliferation regime. Um, and so I'm wondering how serious of a threat is AUKUS in terms of, you know, setting this precedent for the transfer of nuclear technology that, you know, arguably could easily be converted into weapons-grade materials and should the United States and you know the rest of the AUKUS countries be treating, um, be considering this threat seriously? Um, you know, Australia is such a stalwart um, and reliable leader in uh, global nonproliferation within um, the NPT, the Nonproliferation Treaty, uh, within the IAEA. Australian diplomats and Australia's role as a middle power is exemplary. I mean, really. Uh, beyond reproach. So in that sense, there really isn't any worry. But, you know, notionally, anytime you transfer um, a nuclear technology, there's going to be some concern about nonproliferation. Um, I, I don't think uh, there's a real concern. Um, and uh, I don't think in the uh, Congress, for example, there's any significant opposition because of that, certainly not within the uh, Biden administration. But there will be, you know, there will be some uh, you know, New Zealand, for example, um, has expressed concern in that regard. But I don't think it's in any way going to slow down the slow down the deal. On a concluding note, 
The AUKUS Pact, as we've discussed, um, is more or less entirely focused on security as a response to you know, changing dynamics in the Indo-Pacific maritime region. But do you see AUKUS perhaps as a foundation for fostering a more substantial trilateral relations that encompasses non-security issues like economic issues, especially when um, the United States has yet to join the uh, the renewed version of Trans-Pacific Partnership? Yeah, I mean, um, I think this is an, an agreement among three very, very close, like-minded allies. I mean, you go to the Pentagon or you go to the uh, Indo-Pacific Command in Hawaii or U.S. Uh, commands in Korea, and you'll see Australian and British officers serving side by side, sometimes in command of American officers. These, these are, uh, the, 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 you know, you'll see a few Canadians, um, but and, and maybe sometimes a Kiwi on the in- intelligence side. But it's, it's, it's Britain and Australia, our, our closest allies. And we're close allies because we share um, the most fundamental values with each other. And so, yes, it would be very logical that when AUKUS summits happen or ministerials happen, we would, we would, the three countries would talk about how to support democratic norms, about development, about infrastructure financing. Um, but um, AUKUS doesn't have a monopoly on those virtues and it doesn't have a monopoly on the tools to advance those interests. Um, Japan is the largest infrastructure financer in the world, not China's Belt and Road. And Japan has a lot to say and a lot of leadership on development, for example. Um, Korea um, is uh, an example in Asia of a country that democratized and has a lot of um, influence in Vietnam and other places and is something of a model for how to develop. Um, And so, you know, AUKUS will not be the control tower for how the United States, Britain and Australia approach this broader set of issues, whether it's democracy, development, climate change. But given the intimacy of our, of our alliances and the deepness of our trust, yes, there will be lots of coordination and discussion on those issues, I think. But it won't be the main arena for that. Um, I would look for that to Quad, the Quad in the region, um, to the G7 um, and, uh, and, 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 and things like that. It's going to be interesting because AUKUS, the Quad, um, uh, we, we have a a, 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 a real mix of um, alliances. They're not alliances in the sense of being new treaties, security treaties that you know the Senate ratifies. They're not formal alliances like that, but these, these arrangements are proliferating and, um, and it's going to keep the US government busy. We're going to be very focused on the Indo-Pacific, um, keeping all these going. And as I was suggesting earlier, um, it's a very strong signal to China that if if China's coercion uh, becomes more of a problem for the region, these different groupings are going to start to merge more and more. It's a bit of a rheostat to control the temperature. And if China gets too hot, we're going to turn up the air conditioning and and do more uh, to align these different groupings, and there will be more appetite to do it. So I think it, despite the short term and um, and sort of you know very harsh response from Beijing, I think the signal AUKUS sends sends uh, on top of the Quad summit is a very powerful one uh, that will start to resonate inside Zhenghanghai, inside China, about the consequences of China's growing coercion against neighbors. Um, and the important part will be keeping open a pathway for more cooperation in the future. 
And just the last thing I'd say on that is to keep that pathway open, the U.S. has got to get back in the economic statecraft game. We, we left TPP. Maybe it's too difficult to rejoin the now CPTPP in the near term, but there are other things on the table, digital trade agreement, environmental goods trade agreement. Um, the economic part of American statecraft is sorely lacking right now. And we need that because we need to be writing the rules for trade and economic affairs um, so that China doesn't uh, start to do that. But also, as we write those rules, there are forces in China that are worried about the state-owned enterprise sector growing or worried about lack of um, competition in the economy, lack of rule of law and accountability. And, and it incentivizes uh, within China groups to start to reform the economy and open again, because China is now going in the opposite direction. So AUKUS and deterrence and dissuasion and alignment and counterbalancing are absolutely essential. But until the U.S. gets back in the economic statecraft game, we're kind of in this arena with one hand tied behind our back. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Green. That was very informative. You bet. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time. Thank you.